0: and of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week.
1: Well, you may be seated. Can we give it up for my friend Kiana? Yeah. Key, thank you for that. So, so good. And then, of course, we can thank our worship and our tech team for getting this started this morning. What a great way to begin our messages. Thank you. Papa Mike, well good morning all of you once again, whether or not you are online or here in person, whether it's your first time or you are a long timer here at Sunridge Community Church, we'd like to welcome you and thank you for spending a portion of your weekend with us. My name is Jed. And I get to serve as one of our pastors on staff. And this morning, as Britt introduced at the top of the hour, we are continuing in our series where we are studying through the book of Acts, which chronicles the first 30 or so years of the early church and its history. But as we've said week in and week out, that history isn't just something that is detached from us all these millennia later. We continue in that story. So it's not just history, but it is our heritage and something that we take forward as well. It has much to say about how you and I can continue to find our way here as God himself, as we sang earlier, is ultimately the one making a way for us doing a new thing. So, You just heard a passage from Key that shares the radical conversion of Saul. Perhaps you've heard that story before. I can remember being a little one in Sunday school. And my Uncle Gary, who was an elder at our church, the way he would tell Bible stories, I saw Uncle Gary yesterday, actually, in San Diego. He would have a whiteboard, and he would draw the characters as he narrated it. I remember being compelled by straight street And loving that story, it is so, so radical. And this morning, I've titled our message, Before and After, because that's the way that I was presented this story. There's a before and there is an after. And I want to show you a picture that shows striking before. Uh, It's up on the screen. It's a little embarrassing. Whoa. All right, so you can keep that up, Meggo, for a little bit, but I don't know if you'll notice, but if I'd shown this picture several weeks ago, it wouldn't be as jarring before we had gotten new projector screens, and, or projectors, <laughs> uh, but, but alas, uh, this is uh, humbling for me. If you look closely at that big smile of mine, uh, man, there's a lot going on there. <laughs> and, and, and honestly, I, I, I have carried deep insecurity about my teeth for a long, long time. Time, and I eventually got over it, but uh, we can take the picture now. It's getting a little bit <laughs> long. <laughs> you know, when I was in seventh grade, I will never forget. I was inside of the library computer lab, and we were sitting behind these big Mac computers. Back when the screens could cover everything, and so I was sitting there, and there were these girls around the corner, and they were doing what adolescent girls should rightly do. They were rating uh, the the guys in our middle school. <laughs> And my name came up, man. And I didn't share this story, mind you, till I was about 24, 25 with our high schoolers and I was our high school pastor. That's how deeply wounded I was by this occasion. I was sitting there and my name came up and they said, well, you know, Jedley's a really sweet guy and, you know, this or that and, and, and. And they're, they're talking about the, the good qualities, you know, the stuff that are on the outside, the the stuff, uh, actually, actually the stuff on the inside, the heart stuff. And then one of the girls said, well, you know, I think we should knock him down a few runs because of his teeth. Yeah, and they rated me a six, a six out of 10. That is not even passing, my friends. And we know that the Lord looks at the heart, but when you are... 14 years old, 13, 14, 12, whatever age I was, that stuff really just gets you. And I don't know if you can tell now, but my teeth have changed just a little bit. Uh, I have never publicly from the stage thanked the great team that has just so generously taken care of me. Uh, One of our holistic dentists uh, at Sunridge Community Church, Dr. Dollins, and then her husband, Chris, and her son, Kyle, and then her two colleagues, Chris and Nancy. Uh, several years ago decided that they wanted to just love on me and take care of this grill. And so they surprised me and brought me in. And they've been doing work on this for a long time. But Dr. Dollins, thank you. If you guys are looking for a good ortho, uh, Dr. Dolins, she is the one to go visit. She and her team will absolutely take care of you. And isn't that how that works, right? When we've experienced some sort of transformation, we have a story a testimonial, a testimony, something to share based on what has happened to us. And I'll tell you that generally speaking, when I get to share from the stage, uh, I tend to spend a lot of time, understandably so, in, in our text and beginning there. I don't even usually have opening stories anymore, but in an effort to not miss what Luke, the author of Acts, really wants to communicate in this section, I'm just going to let you know that today, unlike times in the past where maybe I bore you with exegetical detail after detail, I'm going to try and refrain a little bit from that this morning, not because it not valuable. We do our very best to communicate well from that place on this stage, and I'm glad that that is a part of what we do. However... If we were to look at this conversion story of the Apostle Paul and just mine it for exegetical details and just do word studies and all those technical things that I really, really do enjoy and was rewarded for in Bible college and all that stuff, it wouldn't quite get to what I think is more at the heart of what Luke wants to communicate and how Paul would want his story shared anyways. I don't think all these centuries later, he would be so concerned about what word was used in this place or that to communicate his radical conversion. And so if you have your note sheets, your first fill in the blank is this. Every time we see someone else's transformation, it affects us differently. Every time we look upon another person's transformation or see something that they have taken part in or done it does, affect us. And maybe you've noticed that when it comes to projects or intangible things, maybe DIY stuff, if you see an item that is refurbished, it's more, oh yeah, that's impressive. But when we watch something take place in the life of another, that can conjure up different things in us. You know, perhaps it inspires us to want to experience transformation for ourselves and other times, maybe we're a bit skeptical. We're not quite sure if that's just a kick or if that's going to last. And then other times, perhaps we experience some envy, uncertainty. My favorite philosopher, theologians, he is Irish. Dr. Peter Rollins says, every time I see a friend's success, a part of me dies. I love that. So honest. And you guys didn't laugh, but I think that is to cover up your discomfort with that truth. We're all affected by seeing transformation. And so this morning, here's our very straightforward pathway. When we look at Saul's conversion, we're going to talk about some of the things that are commonly misunderstood. And then we'll go back to the text and see the things that are strikingly meaningful, the stuff that's really in there. And then finally, we will look at why that really matters to us today. So let's talk first about what's commonly misunderstood here. You'll remember that I shared about my Uncle Gary telling those Bible stories when I was a kid, and I'm so, so grateful for all of that that was given to me. But when you get to Bible college, it seems like your professors in school, they just love dismantling the stuff you learned in Sunday school. It's like their version of what happens in the secular university. They just want to make you feel really bad that you didn't know the whale was actually in Hebrew a giant fish, or how that might be a satirical story, or whatever it is. And so, in this particular place, I was taught as a child that his name was Saul, and then after he was confronted by Jesus, he became what? Paul. And so that there was a name change of sorts, but here's your next fill in the blank. It's commonly misunderstood, his name. It really wasn't changed. You know, one of our former high school pastors, Mojo, that's his nickname, but that's not what we're talking about here. Mojo's real name that he goes by is Joseph, but he actually has another name, a Korean name, and I don't remember what that is, and I didn't call him up to share that with you. But when we think about Saul and Paul, Saul was actually his Hebrew name. That was his Jewish name. And Paul was his Roman name. And so you'll find that in Acts chapter 13, which was much later in his life, it says, but Saul also known as Paul. And even though in the remainder of the book of Acts, he is referred to as the Apostle Paul, we can imagine Paul perhaps being in circles with companions, maybe people that he grew up with that still called him Saul. That might have been comforting for him to, to have people that remembered him as Saul, even though much of the known world thereafter would refer to him as Paul. Does that make sense? We good with that? Nothing too earth shattering there. Here's your next Fill in the blank. This is commonly misunderstood, but Paul actually did not reject Judaism to embrace Christianity. Okay, that is commonly misunderstood here. But if Paul were to reject Judaism, it would have been more than just a category or a religion. He would have been rejecting essentially his entire being. When we see Judaism and Christianity, we see world religions... But in that time, one, the world religion of Christianity had not yet been labeled that. And secondly, for Paul, this was more than just his religious heritage. And if we read in Romans chapter 3, we see Paul talking about this from the context of his holistic self. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles. He says, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? And this is the, the marker that would delineate or distinguish them from the Gentile nations, much in every way. He says basically, there's a ton of advantage being someone like me. From the first place, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And what is if some were unfaithful? Will their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. And then he continues, every human is a liar. Let God be proved true. And then later on in verse 9, he says, what then? Are we any better off? Now he's talking again about his brothers and sisters who are Jews. No, not at all. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who has understanding. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There's no one who shows kindness. There's not even one. Some pretty big statements here by the Apostle Paul. And so again, he's not rejecting something to embrace another. And to prove this, I want to put up a word that you've seen already. And I'm going to have us read it out loud. How do you pronounce this word? Christianity. Christianity. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Now, why is it a little bit confusing for us to see a word like this and not to think about a world religion? Well, the reason why it's confusing, of course, is because this is how we've been raised to read this word. But if we were to break it up, and we can put that next slide over, it is probably better for us linguistically to, to actually speak of this as Christianity. Say that, Christianity. Now, I'm not advocating that you go around and sound pompous and say, now I am all about Christianity. I'm not saying that that's what you need to do. That'd be a little odd. But maybe after this Sunday morning, whenever you see the word Christian or the religion Christianity, you can think Christianity or Christian. Because when we see Christ, we know perhaps that Jesus Christ, Christ wasn't his last name, but a title, which can be translated to Messiah or anointed one or chosen one. And so for Paul, a Jew, when he thought about the deliverance that Yahweh, the Lord of all, was going to be bringing to the world, it was going to come through a deliverer, a chosen one, a Messiah, a Christ. That's why Peter's proclamation, when Jesus asks him who people say I am, and Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is why it is so incredible. We're saying to Jesus, you are the one. You are it. Out of all of the people, out of everything in the cosmos, everything hinges on you. And so when we say Christianity and we see that suffix at the end, idi, or ianity, and we talk about something to the degree of which it is something. We think about all of us, whether you want to consider it a religion or a group of people who are called and then sent, to consider us as little chosen ones We remember that our being chosen only happens in the Christ. Jesus, the Christ. Jesus, the anointed and the chosen one. And so for Paul to be compelled by Christ to write in his letter to the Philippians that he considers all those things that he would have said were great about him as lost compared to Christ, as rubbish compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ. All those things say it's not about a neat and tidy religion that you're going to argue other peoples into. Does that make sense? It's about being compelled by a person. So that's where we can continue in his story. This is what is strikingly meaningful when we are in Acts chapter 9. Because if Christianity, if Christianity were not a religion yet, and we see in the text that early disciples, early followers of Jesus are being persecuted, how does Luke want to make sure that we really catch significance here? Well, he, he makes sure that he notes what actually happened That as he was going and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul asked, Who are you, Lord? And by the way, when Saul is saying, Who are you, Lord? He's not saying, Who are you, God? or Who are you, Lord? as if he knew who Jesus was. He's using the title that would have been, Who are you, Master? Right? Who, who is this voice in the sky surrounded by light? Who in the world? What in the world is going on here? That's what's happening. And the voice says, I am who? I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. So that's your next fill in the blank. He was actually persecuting you. Jesus. That's meaningful. That Luke would make sure to note that the embodiment of Jesus in people who Saul was persecuting is there for us to notice and remember. And it's in the great faith tradition of Jesus actually doing that surprising thing. Do you remember perhaps in Matthew 25 where Jesus is talking about the Son of Man and the end of time will be separating the sheep from the goats and then people are going to be asking him why he's doing such thing. And then he talks about how when he was thirsty, people decided to give him something to drink. When he was hungry, people would feed him or when he was naked, They would clothe him. Or when he was sick or in prison, they would come and visit him. Do you remember that? And people are shocked. Ask, well, when did that happen? And to the righteous, Jesus says, whenever you did to the least of these, brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. And then to the unrighteous, said, "Whatever whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. Do you remember that? Jesus himself, find striking ways to remind people that the way that we look at those around us says much about how we look at him. So let's not miss sight on the fact that Luke wants us to hear what Jesus, the voice said to him. He was persecuting Jesus. Here's the next bit for you, the next fill in the blank that's strikingly meaningful about this conversion story. Ananias, this disciple who was going to share it with Paul, did not question the mission of the Gentiles, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and then the promise of suffering. You heard Key read about this guy, Ananias, who had this dream that Saul was coming on his way and that he was going to hang out to him. And just imagine being Ananias and hearing about the worst possible person on the planet, and you inviting him in your house. And then spending time with him, and not just spending time with the worst possible person in the wide world, but giving them this wild charge to go and do something that would be mind-blowing to your modern culture. But Ananias, he does not question this. And if we look at verse 14, we see parts of what Canon read earlier. He said he has the authority, excuse you, verse 13. Ananias, Lord, I have heard from how many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name with the Lord, said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel, and I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I didn't have Kiana read that last verse to save that
0: a little bit for you.
1: That's probably a little bit of what felt good to Ananias. Ananias at least heard God say to him, don't worry, the dude's going to suffer a whole lot. (laughs) I mean, he's human, right? The reality of this, more than just that little joke at the end of what I shared, is that for Ananias to hear from God that this person named Saul was going to bring a mission to the Gentiles, that would have been mind-numbing. And I've attempted over and over from this stage to communicate that the gospel at its best, the good news, has to be understood in paradox. And not just the gospel, but so much of the most compelling truths of life have to be understood in paradox, which would have been much easier to comprehend in an Eastern culture than it is for us, where we are raised to think logically and rationally and just A to B or one to two. But in their setting, paradox, things that seem contradictory, were in the fabric of so much of their discussion and how they looked at the world. Here's a simple definition of paradox. It's a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. And over and over in your Bibles, you will find things that sound really very contradictory. And so when people make claims that the Bible is filled with contradictions, or why does it say this, and then why does it say that? In fact, when we look at the gospel, we say the good news itself, it is held together by absurdity and contradiction. You see, for Ananias to hear and to know that Yahweh, God, would have a mission from the people of Israel to the Gentiles That is the chosen people of God to the rejected of God. That is the special of God to the disdained of God. That is those who are his to those who are not his. And yet, in the trajectory of the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, we do see minor prophets, bit by bit, begin to proclaim oracles or words from Yahweh that indicate that other nations of the world actually were created by him and for him. But even they are not sure what to do with that. And so when we have Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, who is going to be a light to the Gentiles, who is going to be everything to the nothing, we aren't that surprised by that because, as I've said before, most of us would fall under that category. Those people on the outside who have been invited in. However, at this point in history, this would have been, and I said at the last message I spoke at, the slipperiest of slopes possible to go to the Gentiles. I mean, there's nothing else beyond this. Nothing. There's no category or distinction of a human being other than a Gentile that would preclude you from the grace and the mercy of God. That's why some older translations called the Gentiles pagans. Right? Right? pagans. But it's just a harsh way of saying it's just the rest of you folks, including me, and most of you who are not Jewish by birth. So Ananias doesn't question that. And I love how when he goes to Paul, he prays over him that he would be empowered by the what spirit? The Holy Spirit. And that, we say, is the paradox, the contradiction, the absurdity of the gospel, which is why Paul would say it's foolishness to the world. That a holy God, whom all they had conceived of had to be separated from the presence of sin, would actually empty himself and come in direct contact with the unclean, with the sinful, with the unworthy. And we could get really hyped up about that. It's marvelous news. It's so, so good because just like in any good movie or story, you're, you're watching it or you're reading it, and it's set up so you don't think it's possible. And then it happens. And it's like, are you kidding me? God could actually do the impossible? Yes. Yes. Yeah, it's literally impossible, save for who? God. It'd be impossible for anyone else, but... God. So Ananias delivers this to Saul. And then here's the last little bit before we transition to the final third of our message. After Saul, Paul, is prayed over, he gets really, really excited and he starts going for it. But here's your next fill in the blank. He was actually sent back home. Did you guys know that? He didn't just hop onto his mission. He didn't just start. And when you think about a radical conversion, that's essentially what you're looking for, right? Something happened, there was the before, boom, after, and then life just goes and changes and it's wild. That's not what happened. Verse 19, several days he was with the disciples in Damascus and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues saying, That he is the son of God. And then later on, he is going to be in Jerusalem. But when he attempts to join the disciples in verse 26, they were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles and described for them on the Lord. He had seen the Lord, how he had spoken to them and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. And so he went in and out among them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He spoke and argued with the Hellenists, but they were attempting to kill him. Then the believers learned of it. They brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Meanwhile, the church throughout Judea, Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was built up, living in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. We didn't share this earlier, but his fuller, Name would have been Saul of Tarsus. That's where he was from. And yesterday I went home to San Diego. I don't go home to San Diego very much. But when I left San Diego to move to Orange County for college, I told myself, Self, you're never going back home to San Diego. Now I love San Diego. I'm so grateful that I was born and raised in the promised land. <laughs> it really, really is. 75 degrees, I can totally understand why people spend that much money to live down there. Because your quality of life is significantly better. However, we, we did move out to the valley. <laughs> we like it here. But I never wanted to move back home to San Diego because it was home. And how many of you have a story where you left home and you didn't want to come back? Anyone? Yes, a lot of us do understand that. And it's really fascinating because there's no shame in coming home. There isn't. However, we do want to leave. Most of us want to leave home and not come back. And why I love this portion of Saul's story is he was so on fire. He's going off and just preaching. He's in his, his early 20s. He's causing a ruckus. And people want to take his life already. The sufferings, it's just barely beginning. They already want to put this guy down. And so the disciples send him back home. They send the 20-year-old kid, 20-something-year-old kid, back home. You know who he would have lived with when he moved back home? Mom and dad. I'm telling you, it's not written. You can't see it here, but Paul he would have went back home and he would have lived in Tarsus with his parents. And can you imagine what it was like for him to have this radical moment with Jesus and then to be sent back home to live with mom and dad? A lot of us can experience the the embarrassment of that, even though it should not be embarrassing. Quite frankly, when I talk to young adults today that are living with their parents, I think that's a great financial decision. And if you have great parents that will welcome you there, go for it, please, by all means. And then just come up with your way that you're going to figure that out. And then parents, if you're doing that for their kids, you better make sure that they take care of you later on, because that is a gift that you are providing them. I'm speaking all of us here, okay? But he was sent back home, and what we don't recognize is that even though it looks like a few chapters later, uh, chapter 11, verse 26, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. This is Barnabas. And so it was that for an entire year that they met with the church and taught a great many people. And it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. It's in this place in Antioch where Bar- Barnabas finds Saul and then takes him there. And, and then this community of outsiders, for the first time, they are given some scholars say a nickname. It wasn't a nickname. It was a derogatory name, right? It was, you're the little chosen ones. You guys are so lame. That's lame. Your chosen one died. Why would that be cool? That, that's what that was. It was derogatory. But for Paul, even though this is only two chapters later, do you know that scene happened nine years later in his life? Nine years later. Nine years later, and over the course of those nine years, that's when Peter and the Jews were beginning to grapple with what it meant that Jesus could be going to the nobodies, the outsiders, the sinfuls, the pagans, those people. It took nine or so years, and when you and I in our modern day and time are grappling with issues about who's included or not included, or we're struggling with the way things should look in our world, it doesn't just happen. Like this, because God is trying to transform all of us in the heart of whatever is going on outside of your heart. And you might not recognize that that is what's happening, but if we don't consider that that's what God wants to do with us, then we will miss a great amount of work. So here's why all this really, really matters to us. Here's what I'd say, just based off of this narrative of Paul's conversion, maybe, just maybe, we could suggest. That you and I, and me, along with segments of the modern church, maybe we're on the way to Damascus. Maybe we are so convinced that we are doing the work of God, just like Saul was. And maybe, just maybe, maybe, just maybe, we need to be confronted by a bright light and knocked off of our high horse and hear Jesus question us. And consider that maybe, perhaps, in our efforts to please him, we're, in fact, persecuting in some way. Uh, Several weeks ago, my wife and I were having a conversation. Uh, Mal's over there. And uh, Mal is pretty big time personally, of course, but then professionally, she is the Director of Child and Family Programs at International Christian Adoptions, ICA. It's right down the road there. Uh, Basically, she oversees all of international and domestic adoptions and foster care placements. I mean, that's a big job. (laughs) Much more important than the stuff that I do here. And we were talking about what's happening today in society and in the church as we are becoming Of course, so polarized about different issues. And this isn't to make comment on this or that, but to say that as we experience an evolution right now in abortion legislature, and we talk about choice and life and pitting those things against each other, we really do miss people, right? We really do miss people in all of that and an opportunity to be transformed by God in that as we are talking about these things and considering these things. Because when we speak of the sacredness of life, which is, of course, our conviction that life, if if Jesus comes to bring life and life to the full, we would also be challenged by how we live that life out in light of the fact that many people in this life do things very different than us or look differently than us and consider things differently than us and experience pain and hurt differently than us. And there are perhaps more compassionate ways that we can think of one another in all of these things. And maybe at this point in time when the church has done a job being for or against issue there are a multitude of other things that happen within the context of human life that we really ought to be challenged by, to grapple with. Like the fact that there are an inordinate amount of kids and teens who weren't aborted that are in this system. Or that we have women who have experienced trauma beyond Uh, Imagine sexually and the types of cover-ups that we have seen happen in in the church even and what that ought to provoke in us. Or when we think about our our, our teenagers and what they're experiencing at this season or stage of transition in life and knowing that suicide, it tends to be the, the second most scary thing and variable for adolescents: suicide. The reason why they would experience loss of life. And when we talk about sacredness of life, did you know that for students that have found belonging in the LGBT community, they are four times more likely to commit suicide? I'm telling you that when we think through the good news of Jesus Christ, And we see other people outside of us. There's something that he wants to do in our hearts. And if we're not thinking about that, and we're just ready to argue people into this or to that, we are missing an opportunity. So here's your next fill in the blank. Perhaps our perspective on outreach can shift. We often fail to see that it's always Jesus reaching out. We say that it's always initiated by God, right? We love because he first loved us. And when we think about God's love for the world, and we say the love that God has for the world, it means that God would desire, that God would pursue, that God would not give up. That is what love is. And, And Staying next to my wife Mallory is Lisa. She was uh, one of our pastors here on staff not too long ago. And one of the things that I was so excited about when Lisa came on staff, as she was leading at the time, just outreach and mission, was her perspectives on mission and outreach. And helping our congregation learn that it wasn't just about us doing things for other people, but recognizing that if God is doing work in us, then we would see the ways that God is constantly doing work in the lives of other people. She talked constantly about the image of God. When we say people are image bearers, the recognition there is that all human beings are made in God's image, and they are representations of God. And yet in this fallen and broken world, we have lost so much of that, not just in ourselves, but in other people. And yet, There's a way for us to look at one another and call attention to the fact that even though it might not look like it, God is always reaching out. I'm almost done here, folks, but let's go to the Gospel of John and see how he opens in this first chapter. He says, in the beginning was the word And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What was coming into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all the people. And later on, he was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. We were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. Your, your next fill in the blank here is, really there never was a before God. <laughs> there couldn't be before God. <laughs> in the beginning was the Lord. Always God first, through. Alpha Omega, always God. It really is before I recognize. It's before I noticed, before you and I saw that it wasn't of us, but it is always of God. And then once we begin to have that recognition, it takes a long time, a lifetime of being reminded and reminding each other over and over and over that it is not of us, it is of Him. And so when I spoke about leash earlier and why outreach and mission were beginning to transform and change here is because we were seeing and saying to one another. It's not about us going and doing wonderful things for our community. It's as we participate in what God is doing in our community, we are reminded that God is reaching out to us and the person next to us. You see how it's not just us here and then them over there and we're doing this stuff and they get to be recipients of that stuff. No, 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 no. No, we together are receiving the goodness of God, which is why John then writes, and the word became flesh and lived among us. We've seen his glory, the glories of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. John testified to him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he was before me. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Can I invite the worship team to come up at this time? From his fullness. Not from his kinda, not from his partial Not from his almost, not from his maybe, not from his before, not from his fluky after. No, 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 no. From his what? Fullness. We have all received what? Grace upon grace. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Here's your very last fill in the blank. Evangelism calls out whether or not we believe the good news. And there's a play on words here, right? Evangelism, Yongelion, good news. And we talk about the church, ecclesia, those who are called out, the called out ones. If you and I actually are the church, the people who are called and sent by God, what will happen is over the course of our lives, Recognition of grace upon grace will cause us to look at ourselves and other people and then be forced to go, "Is it possible? Is it possible that God wants to change and transform me and you and us in that? So the thing that I will leave us with today, Sanders Community Church, before we take part in worship through song, is this: Would you? As we are singing these worship songs, as you are responding, rather than just singing out these words, would you perhaps ask the Lord, who are you? Who are you? And what are you doing? And then ask if he would invite you to be a part of that again in a new way through the wilderness. Let's pray.
0: Hey everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening.